Amen. If you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22? Um, if you do not have a Bible, I want to let you guys know that right there in the back in the lobby, we give them away for free. So if you do not own one, we do have a free one for you. Um, and you can just, as soon as service is over, you can grab one of those. Or if you don't have one uh, right now, you can actually get out of your seat and go grab one. But the cool thing about technology is if you have an iPhone, you actually have the Bible. Um, so if you download that version app, you can follow along. If you don't have any of that, we're going to have it here on the screens. And this passage I'm about to read is going to be the foundation for the four-week series that we're going to be going through, which is called The Greatest. And so here, I'm going to start off by reading it, and it says this, Teacher... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all on the law and prophets. So here's what Jesus is saying. The disciples are saying, God, what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? And Jesus says, Two things. Number one, love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's the issue when we read this passage. It is virtually impossible for us to love God like we should if we do not understand the Father's love for us. Now, let me put this into perspective. Um, some of you have a hard time understanding that Jesus actually loves you unconditionally because maybe you grew up in a home where you had a father that didn't love you, and now you equate that father's love to how Jesus loves you. And so what I want to do is kind of set all this up for you and share with you kind of a personal example. Um, seven years ago, or actually this February, my wife and I will celebrate seven years of marriage. Um, if you don't know any of the background of my wife and I's relationship, uh, this is kind of kind of funny and kind of weird, but my wife and I uh, started dating when I was in high school. I actually met my wife when she was 12 years old. I was 14 years old, and uh, back in this time, my dad had just planted a church in Jennings, and uh, I'm on stage, and I'm a musician, so I was playing bass, and uh, I see my wife out in the audience, and it was like this, you know those movies where it just kind of stands still for a moment, and I'm just like fixated on her, and I'm not even really hitting any notes, I'm just looking at her, and here's what's crazy. Um, after service, I have never talked to her, never met her, or anything. I go up to my dad and I say, hey, listen, um, I think I know who I'm going to marry. My dad's like, son, shut up. No, I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not joking. I saw this girl while I was playing bass. I'm going to marry her. And lo and behold, um, I married her. Now, here's the thing. My wife and I, uh, and, and I'm going to set this whole story up, and you're going to think it's all grand, and you're going to think it's all perfect and great, and there's a lot of things about it that's grand and that's great, but I'm going to bring you to a, a reality in a moment. So, so hear me out here. So my wife and I, um, when we started dating, never dated anybody else, never had any previous relationships or anything like that. And um, in 2007, we went off to a missions trip to South Africa, and we're there for two weeks. And while we're there, I worked up this, what I thought was this glorious plan to get engaged to my wife there. And so while we're in South Africa, I pop the question. She says, yes, we come back eight months later, get married. And up until this time, everything in our relationship was smooth sailing. Like, it was just perfect. My wife thought I was the most romantic person in the world, right? And I literally thought I was the most romantic person in the world. She thought I had hardly any faults. I thought she had hardly any faults. And then this crazy thing happens. You get married, and you move into the same house. And then you're like, who is this person? 
What have I done? And so here's what happens. We have, I'm not kidding you, years. I've dated my wife since I was 14 years old. Okay, I marry her when I'm 20. My wife is 19 when we get engaged. I'm 21 when we get married. And for this whole time, I am deceived. Thinking that my relationship with my, my wife and all this stuff is just awesome. Then we move in and we really begin to discover who the other person is. We begin to discover my wife is an extrovert. She loves people. She is a people person. She is just this person that she is that kind of person that we all hate. She gets out of bed in the morning and she's happy. Like she gets out of bed and she's like, good morning. I get out of bed and I'm like, shut up. She's an extrovert. I'm an introvert. She likes to talk. I hate to talk. Right? So we start discovering all these things about the other person, and we begin to realize, or I begin to come to the conclusion that my wife is not doing what I need her to do to make me happy. And then she begins to come to the conclusion that I'm not doing what I need to do to make her happy. And so you have this thing that kind of comes together in the first three, probably three and a half, four years of our marriage was really difficult because we were really learning who the other person was. Now, I would say this, the reason it was so difficult for us is because of the fact that we had a false version of what true love really was. We thought that true love was, I'm going to make her happy, and in return, she makes me happy. It was an emotive kind of love. It was a romanticized kind of love. It's the kind of love that Hollywood kind of portrays. You know, your heart flutters, and you have violins playing, and you light candles, and that's what love really is. When, when it all came down to it, we really didn't understand what true love was. The truth is, over the past seven years, God has taught us a lot about what love really is. And I say this because there's many mornings that I wake up, and for both of us, we don't feel like loving each other well. You ever just wake up on the wrong side of the bed and... Your spouse hasn't done anything to you yet, but you're just like, don't even look at me. <laughs> right? Like, it's just something that happens, and you don't even know why. And there's days like that that I don't emotionally feel like serving or loving my wife. And, and there's many days for her that she doesn't emotionally feel like serving or loving me. And here's what I came to the conclusion. There's a Hebrew word called ahava, meaning the love of the will. Meaning this, I will love you no matter what goes on. I will love you and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. Now, don't romanticize that. It's not like this dreamy kind of thing like, hey, baby, I'm not going anywhere. It's more like this. Hey, I see the messy side of you. I see the ugly side of you. I see all your faults, all your weaknesses, and I'm not going anywhere. That's what true love is, and that's something that that Claire and I have had to work out over the past few years. Like, she knows every weakness that I have. She knows my tendencies. I'm a, Any, like, natural-born procrastinators in here? Anybody? I'm raising everything, right? My wife is like, hey, can we paint the hallway? I'm like, yeah, we'll paint it tomorrow. And it gets painted, like, three years from now. Okay, right? Or she just ends up doing it. <laughs> but there's things. She knows all my faults. She knows all my weaknesses. She knows the ugly side of me. And here's the commitment that we've made to each other. You know my faults, you know my weaknesses, 
but I'm not going anywhere. That's what true love is. True love is not this emotional kind of feeling, this emotional sense of like, hey, you need to please me, you need to make me happy, I'm not happy with you, so I need to serve. Here's the problem with that, is that when you fall and you mess up, now you don't have an opportunity to be vulnerable anymore, right? So true love is this, and I'm framing this all up for a reason. Okay, this is what true love, because if you don't understand what true love is and how the Father really loves you and he loves us, you're going to have a hard time understanding this. True love is saying, I see the mess, I see the ugliness, I see the flaws, I see the weaknesses, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. If our understanding of love doesn't have some kind of depth and weight and there's no anchor to it, we can't frame it up, okay? So that ahava, that Hebrew word that says, I'm not going anywhere, that is the kind of love that the Father has for us. And this is how you need to equate it. God sees all of your weaknesses, all of your flaws, all of your messiness, all of your ugliness, and he says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. That is the kind of love that our Father has for us, okay? We cannot love God well, we cannot love our neighbor well if we do not understand the love that the Father has for you and for me. The love that the Father has for you and for me. I want to point to an interesting verse in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, and it's a quick verse, you don't have to turn there, it's going to be on the screens, and it says this, And behold, a voice from heaven said, Listen to this. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Period. So what's going on here? Okay, this is when Jesus' ministry is just about to start. Okay? He has done, I want to point something out. He has done nothing yet. He comes up to John the Baptist and he says, hey, I want you to baptize me. And John the Baptist is saying, no, 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 you should be baptizing me. You are Jesus, the son of God. Long story short, John baptizes Jesus. The heavens open up and a voice from heaven says, Behold, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now what's the interesting part of this passage? Is it the fact that the, the heavens open up? No. It's the fact that Jesus has done zero miracles. He has, he has healed no sick. He has casted out no demons. He has raised nobody from the dead. He has done absolutely nothing except be a carpenter for the past 30 years. He's done nothing. And here's what's crazy, what stands out to me in this passage. Is the Father says, I'm well pleased with you. Even though you've done nothing yet. And here's what we get caught up in sometimes as Christians. We feel in order for the Father to love us well, that we have to perform. Jesus has done nothing to earn any of the Father's love. And yet the father looks down and says, behold, I'm well pleased with you. I love you. That's the significance of this passage, that Jesus loved him first before he had an opportunity to do anything. John, um, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. How do we know that he first loved us? Well, let me point you to a simple verse that you see everywhere. It's on every coffee cup. If you go to football games, you're going to see it posted everywhere. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? 
gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved us first. He loved us first. So in order for us to really love Jesus, in order for us to really understand how we should in return love God, we have got to understand that he loved us first despite our weaknesses. Here's a hard thing to think about. Your righteousness, meaning you at your best, you performing at your best, when you can look and say, hey, it's been two weeks since I've sinned, or it's been two weeks since I've done this or that, you at your best is never going to be adequate enough to cancel the record of debt before you. Ever. Ever. You're never going to be good enough to save yourself. Ever. You're never going to be able to perform well enough to save yourself. That's why our God, in his great love, leaned in and said, I will send you a son. I will love you first. Here's what I want you guys to think about this morning. God is, not, God is not repulsed by you. He came to rescue you. God is not repulsed by you. He came to rescue you. Some of you really need to think about that this morning. He's not disgusted with you. If he was, he would have never sent his son. Right? Some of us are so convinced because of our sin, because of our past, because of our guilt, because of our shame, that God is just utterly disgusted with us. And if he was, he would have never sent his son. He loved us first. And this is why we love him back. Not because we're commanded to, not because we have to, but now it becomes because we want to. The reason I love Jesus, the reason that I pastor people is not because I have to. It's because I want to. Because God in his grace and in his mercy came down and saved an unworthy, wretched sinner like me. With all my past, with all my history, with all my scars, with all my wounds, he saved me. I serve him because I want to. I love him because I want to. Let's finish the verse in John 3.16, moving on to John 3.17 going along with God is not repulsed by you. He came to rescue you. John 3, 17. The Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but rather save the world. It's huge. He did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. Christ did not come to bring you condemnation. He came to remove it from you. Can I be honest with you? Just bare bones honest. It's still hard for me to believe that Jesus loves me how I am right now. And he doesn't love some future version of me. That is still hard for me to wrestle with. Here's, here's the thing. Some of us are absolutely convinced the new year rolls around. We're going to make new resolutions. And we believe once we can um, you know, pray more or read our Bible more consistently, or get rid of that sin that we're dealing with, or that addiction that we're fighting, or those things, that once we can get past that hump, or once we can get past all that, now God will really love us more. God loves you 
right now. Your mess, your sin, your, your filth, everything that you're dealing with. He loves you right now. That's hard for us to believe sometimes, right? Amen. It's so easy for us to reflect on, man, this is just difficult. This is hard. How am I going to get through this? How am I going to break through this barrier? Does God really love me? God's not repulsed by you. He came to rescue you. He came to rescue you. Let me prove it to you in Romans 5.8. But God, I love that. A lot of time. But God shows his love for us, and then while we were still, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Does that verse say, when you cleaned yourself up, then Christ died for you? No. Here, can, listen, church people. <laughs> Saved, lost, wherever you're at. Here's what you got to understand. Stop trying to clean yourself up. Stop. You can't. You cannot clean yourself up. Okay? Stop trying to make resolutions. Stop trying to say, well, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Stop checking off the list. God loves you right now. You cannot save yourself. You need a Savior. That's why he's called the Savior. We need Jesus. You know the greatest challenge, and I think this goes along with the new year, because we're always thinking about new resolutions. We're always thinking about new things that we need to accomplish, new things that we need to achieve. The greatest challenge is not your discipline. The greatest challenge is not your devotion even to Jesus. The greatest challenge is actually believing the gospel. You know what that means? Could it be that a God loved us so much, so much, that he sent his one and only son to die for us, even when we were sinners, to rescue us? Could it be that we serve a God that is so merciful and so graceful that no matter what season or point of life you're in right now, that he chooses you? That he loves you? Listen, you can't shake your you cannot shake yourself free from the power of darkness. You or me, we're no match for the devil. We're no match for the powers of evil. None. But if we hang our hope, and if we anchor ourselves in Christ, oh, he's a perfect match. Right? There's no answers inside of yourself. There's only one answer. He was sent to the cross. And it's Jesus. You know, I think a lot of times, and I touched on it earlier, a lot of times... We are so convinced that we can set ourselves free. Listen, if you're battling with issues or addictions or hurts or pain right now, let me help you out. You can't do it by yourself. You can't break yourself free. If you could have, you would have already. 
You cannot set yourself free. That is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says you need a savior. You are chained. You have no answers. You need Jesus. We need a savior. We need Jesus. Here's what, here's what I love about Jesus. And maybe you're hearing all this this morning. You're like, look, Pastor Zach, that's great. It's great. Good news. All right? But I'm so ashamed. You know what I believe the Father says? Give me your shame. Give me your shame. Or maybe you ask, well, what if I do it again? You know what Jesus says? I'll still be here. I'll still be here. I'm not going anywhere. Ahava. I'm not going anywhere. That's true love. Listen, your mess, your shame, your guilt, whatever it is that you're battling with, your addiction, he'll still be there. You're going to mess up when, probably when you leave here. Probably a week from now. Maybe in like 30 minutes when this sermon's over. He'll still be there. Give him your shame. Give him your guilt. His love is not the love that our culture portrays. Look, I gotta admit something, and I guess I shamefully admit this. Anybody listen to the new Taylor Swift album in here? No, no? okay, dang it. Now I feel really stupid. Um, well, I was, see, I'm, as a pastor, I'm kind of interested in what's going on in culture, and so I'm listening to this album. Um, 1989 is her new album, and I cannot help but think every single song, every song on the album is about love and how it ends. How somebody hurts her and how it ends. And how she's going to hurt them back. And that's the kind of love that our culture portrays, right? That you did X to me or you did this to me. Now it's over. Now I'm looking for the new thing. Listen, you've got to get it out of your head that that is how the, the love of the Father works. When you screw up or when you mess up, God doesn't just go, all right, moving on to the next person, not worth it. That's not how it works. There's a love, that Hebrew word, ahava, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. The book of Ephesians is probably one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. I think I've probably read it more than any books. And uh, chapter 1 is probably one of my favorite chapters, and I'm picking it up in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Stop there. What does that mean? Even as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Meaning this, before you even had an opportunity to screw it all up, or to mess up, or to fall flat on your face, he still chose to love you. Like before there were stars, before there were planets, before God created anything, he knew you, he knew your faults, he knew your struggles, he knew what your sins were going to be, and he still chose to love you. Before the foundation of the world, he knew you. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose 
of his will. Before everything started, he wanted you to be a part of the family. Listen, I don't care if you label yourself like, look, I am the chief of sinners. One of the greatest apostles in the Bible, Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament and did probably more than anybody in this world could ever do for the sake of the gospel, labeled himself, I, listen, I am the chief of sinners. You know what's ironic about that statement? He's like, listen, I, if anybody has faulted more, it's been me. And he probably accomplished more than any of us ever will <laughs> for the sake of Jesus. Like, God used that man mightily, despite his faults, despite who he was. I mean, do we honestly get off on the fact that God can only use us, God can only speak to us, God is only going to do stuff through us if we can get things in order? That is the biggest, one of the greatest lies that the enemy can tell us, over and over I will only speak to you. I will only use you once you get things right. That's so far from the truth. Because if you read this book, all throughout it, it is full of men and women that just royally screwed it up. Here's, here's what you get all throughout the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then Revelations chapter 22 and 23. That is the only chapters in the Bible, four chapters, where things go well. The rest of it, things go really bad. And we need a Savior. And we need a Savior. What, Genesis chapter 2, it's God created the world and all these things, there's no sin. Ch chapter 3, the fall of man. And everything all the way, and then Genesis chapter 22 through 23, what is it? It's God saying, I'm going to make all things new again. God took unperfect people Sinners, he spoke to them, he used them, but ultimately he loved them really well. Nobody's going to love you like Jesus. You may come from a situation in here where you say, look, it's so hard for me to understand that because I come from a background where love was so um, fluctuating. Where somebody would tell me they loved me and then a month later they were gone. Look, I don't know your past, I don't know your history, I don't know what circumstances you're in right now, but that is not how the Father loves us. The Father loves us with an ahava love, saying, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. You can do anything you want. And as soon as you're ready to come back, and as soon as you're ready to come home, I'll receive you with open arms. No matter the circumstances, no matter the colorful past history that you may have, how much you think that you've screwed it all up? I'm right here. I'll still be here. Here's what I love about Ephesians 1. When it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Here's the deal. God knew you were going to be messy and he still chose you. God knew you were going to be sinful and messy and he still chose you. That's the whole point of the cross, right? God knows you're going to fail. He knows you're going to screw up. He knows right now maybe you feel dirty or unworthy. He knows all that. 
The whole point of the cross is this. There would be this picture of his love in pursuit of you despite you. He pursues you despite you. You know what that means? He pursues you even though you mess up. Even though you don't feel like you measure up, he still pursues you. Let me give you an even better description of the cross. The cross is a perfect picture of how far God is willing to go because he loves you. Some of you are just absolutely convinced that God is just done with you. Like, you're on like your thousandth prayer of God forgive me for this one particular thing. <laughs> if I pray this again, God is surely going to shun me. The cross is a perfect picture of how far he's willing to go. He's willing to die to secure that you know that you can be a part of this family. I want to close with a story in Matthew chapter 9 that I think will be very helpful for some of you. And let me set it up. Matthew 9. Jesus is on his way. And we don't know who it is. It just says, the Bible says he's on his way to heal the ruler's daughter. He's on his way to heal the ruler's daughter. And he's making his way through this crowd. And in the middle of this crowd, there is a lawbreaker. There's this woman who has an issue, some female issues. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And according to the Mosaic law, she's unclean. According to the Mosaic law, she should be isolated and thrown in prison. No one should touch her, according to the Mosaic law. Imagine this. She's making her way through this crowd. She knows she shouldn't be there. Okay? She knows she's breaking the law. Why? Because she's unclean. She's on her hands and knees crawling through this crowd. And it says, Jesus is just making his way forward. And it says, she touches the hem of his garment and immediately power leaves Jesus and heals her. And then one of the most incredible things in all of scripture happens. Very simple, but very profound. In Matthew 9, 22, it says, but Jesus turned around. But Jesus turned around. Now, I want you to get this imagery here, okay? Jesus turns around. Why would he turn around? He turns around because he, he felt power to leave him, and he wants to know, who is this woman? Now, this woman does not instantly reveal herself. Why? Because she thinks that Jesus is going to judge her according to the Mosaic law. Jesus just healed her, but now she doesn't want to be seen because, oh, wait, I was unclean. I just broke the law. But then it says Jesus turned around and he looks for this woman. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus reject this woman? No. Did this woman break the law? Yes. Did Jesus reject this woman? No. Jesus turned around to pursue this woman. Jesus healed this woman, despite who she was, despite the fact that she broke the law, despite the fact that she knew she was sinning by even being in this place, and God still chooses to heal her. He 
heals her in despite of her. This woman was unclean. By law, she deserved condemnation. But then John 3, 16, but God so loved the world. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for you, for me, for our sin, for our shame, for our guilt. He so loved the world that he miraculously works even when a woman is crawling on her hands and knees and she's sinning. God still heals her. You don't have to be perfect for God to speak to you. You don't have to be perfect for God to heal you. Oftentimes, God heals you despite you. Oftentimes, God works in you, not because of how good you are, but because of how good he is. Oftentimes, God works through you to give himself glory, not you. So here's the deal. That woman is a perfect picture of you and me. That woman is a perfect picture of you and me. Some of you in here, you're crawling on your hands and knees right now. And you're saying, God, if I can just hear from you, I'll believe. God, if you would just heal me, if you would just take me out of this situation, I'll give you everything. Here's what I want to challenge you to do over these next 21 days. Do whatever it takes. This woman, you know what's so significant about this story? She was willing to do anything for Jesus to heal her. She was willing to break the law. She was willing to crawl on her hands and her knees. She was willing to, even if she had to be persecuted or put to death, she wanted to be healed. And she goes, God, I'm at the end of my rope. I will do anything. And for some of you, you've got to come to that place. You've got to say, okay, God, 21 days. It's been a dry season. It's been a rough year. It's been a rough season. I need you. And I will do anything. Anything. Some of you are 100% convinced and paralyzed in your faith because you absolutely believe that Jesus is fed up with you. I'm going to read to you a scripture in Romans 8, 38-39. This is so good. For I am sure that neither death or life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing, Amen. nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Absolutely nothing. Not angels, not height, nor depth, not demons, no matter what circumstances you're in right now. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Nothing. So whatever reason or whatever excuse you're using, throw it away. Because this book, our God says, listen, I don't care what you've done or what you're battling with or what you're dealing with right now. There is nothing that can separate you from my love. Absolutely nothing. 
So how do we love God and we love people? First, we have to understand the Father's love for us. Isn't it so true when you know that you're loved that you want to love somebody back? And you don't do it because you want to. I mean, you don't do it because you have to, you do it because you want to. Right? When my wife serves me, or vice versa, it's something that we want to do back to the other. So before we can learn to love God, before we can learn to love people well, before we can enact that great commandment, love God, love people, you've got to understand that the Father's love is an ahava love for you, saying, I will not go anywhere. You can screw it all up, and I'm still going to be right here. I'm still going to be right here. Just with every head bowed, every eye closed in this room, If you're in here this morning and you're saying, look, Pastor Zach, honestly, I'm just struggling with the fact that God just loves me. If that's you in here this morning, would you just slip your hand up? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I thank you for these beautiful people. God, that you know them and you know them like nobody else knows them. God, you know the deepest parts of us. God, you know the mess, you know the sin, you know the struggle. God, you know the good, you know the bad. And God, you still love us. Father, we thank you for your unconditional 